This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Hillary Clinton's national campaign manager, Robbie Mook, is in Colorado this week to open new field offices for the campaign, raise money, and meet with volunteers. We have standing invitations in to both Clinton and Donald Trump to appear on our show. In the meantime, we asked Mook to join us to talk about Clinton's views on issues of particular concern to Coloradans. We'll also talk about the campaign strategy in the state. We should note we're working to schedule someone from Trump's national campaign as well. Robbie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andrea. Let's start with fracking. It's been very controversial in Colorado and maybe on the state ballot this fall. Secretary Clinton has said she's against it when any local or state government's against it. But some people believe fracking isn't just a state and local issue, and they say concerns about water and air pollution cross state boundaries. How, if at all, would Secretary Clinton step up federal involvement in this issue? Well, as you pointed out, Andrea, she, she's coming to this with, with some broad principles, the first of which, as you mentioned, is that uh, localities need to have the final say uh, as to whether uh, it can happen uh, in, in their communities. And secondly, that we need, we need national standards to ensure uh, that health, safety, and our environment are being protected. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a constitutional expert, and so there's a lot of issues that need to be worked out um, vis-a-vis uh, the federal government versus the state government. But I think what what's really important in this election are those core principles. And um, you're hearing something very different uh, from Donald Trump. Uh, he he hasn't he's either been unclear or uh, seems uninterested in in these health, safety, and environmental issues. So would Clinton uh, be willing to get involved uh, on a federal level um, if it were were possible for her to do something? Well, what she's talked about is the need for some sort of nationwide standard, again, to protect health, safety, uh, and the environment. How, what the legal uh, framework for that would be, uh, as I said, needs to be worked out, and that's obviously um, uh, uh, particularly true here uh, in Colorado. But uh, but but the principle is there that uh, you know nowhere in this country. Uh, should should people's uh, health be at risk because of this? Yeah, and one of the recent roadblocks, a federal judge struck down some fracking regulations imposed by the Obama administration. The judge said Congress had specifically excluded fracking from federal oversight in most cases. So the question is really, is there anything Clinton can do federally without congressional approval? Well, I think that's a matter for the courts to figure out. Um, uh, obviously, uh, there's always a legislative option as well, and I think all of it will have to be looked at. Um, but I, I, I think it's important, you know, campaigns are about the big ideas and, and the values that the candidates are promoting. And again, this is a clear difference between her and Trump. She's been very clear uh, that we have to protect health, safety, and, and the communities need to have the final say. Let's move on to climate change. Uh, Clinton set three climate change change goals she says will be met within 10 years. She wants to generate enough renewable energy to power every home in the country. She wants to cut energy waste by a third, and she wants to reduce oil consumption by a third. Those goals mean people and businesses will have to make some major changes. Uh, What's Clinton going to do specifically to make that happen? Well, it's a great question. I, I think the, the look, the, 
the threshold issue here is whether there's a real commitment to actually getting something done. Donald Trump has called climate change a Chinese hoax. Um, and so, first and foremost, Hillary's completely committed to making progress uh, on this issue. Secondly, um, this is not just uh, a climate, environmental, health um, uh, issue. It's an economic issue, both because here in Colorado, climate change could have a dramatically negative impact on agriculture, on tourism, ski industry, and so on. Um, but it's also an enormous opportunity, and, and Colorado would be at the forefront of that, too, to create uh, good-paying green jobs. Um, the, the solution here is not just slapping a bunch of regulations on people. The solution here is investing uh, in the technologies that can make this transition uh, as efficient and as quick as possible. You know, she's talked about installing uh, uh, hundreds of millions of, of solar panels uh, in her first administration. That is part of the solution of making sure that homes are run uh, on on renewable energy. So um, that it, it, it's 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 an all all of the above. Uh, uh, approach to this. Is it, it really realistic? Making an investment. And is it realistic to think every home could be powered by renewable energy in 10 years? It is. It is. If we get uh, those solar panels installed, if we make sure that homes are made uh, much more energy efficient, the technology exists right now to help homeowners uh, uh, through technology and, and thermostat technology regulate. Uh, uh, their homes so that there's less waste. Um, also, you know, retrofitting homes to make sure that uh, that they're more energy efficient. All this is possible, but it, but these are big ideas and big goals, and they're not uh, just because they're possible doesn't mean that they're you know they're simple or they're you know they're quick. This is this is going to take a lot of work. Um, but what's scary is how Donald Trump doesn't even accept the premise that global. Uh, that, that climate change is happening or that it's, a, let alone that it's a, it's a big problem. Uh, the Supreme Court recently put a hold on the administration's clean power plan, which cuts greenhouse gas emissions from power plants by a third. If the clean power plan is blocked, what's Secretary Clinton's alternative for getting those emissions cut? This is a great question. Look, I, I think um, what this goes back to, and this is true for a lot of issues, is that the next president is not just going to appoint the the one Supreme Court vacancy we have right now. Uh, she, I would argue, uh, is going to appoint, you know, two, three, possibly even four new justices. And so we've got to have a president who, as I said, believes that climate change is real and shares the what I would argue are mainstream values here in Colorado and across the country. Um, I think that ruling was very unfortunate. Um, uh, this carbon dioxide that is going into our atmosphere is a pollutant. It is, it is changing our climate, and it is a threat uh, to our health and our economy and our future. So I think, I think the Supreme Court is an important piece. And then, look, um, the next president has got to start working with both parties and working across the aisle to get something real passed on this issue. And Hillary Clinton has a long record of working across the aisle uh, to get things done, um, is she that, willing you know, to, um, Rob? Is she willing to go around uh, Congress with executive action um, as Obama's done during his administration? I think that has to be on the table, and that's been effective in some cases. But as we've seen, uh, if the court is blocking you, uh, uh, 
you know, uh, we, we need to make sure that we have a court that's 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 going to be friendly um, and and future uh, looking. So look, the last thing I would just say is we think about working across uh, party lines, working with the judiciary. If there's one person who will be divisive, even within his own party, it's Donald Trump. So I think it's just another reason why the stakes are really high in this election. Well, let's move on to uh, campaign strategy in Colorado. Uh, your campaign hasn't bought ads in Colorado since late July, and Clinton has a double-digit lead over Trump in the latest poll of Colorado voters, though it's obviously very early in the game. Do you think the state is now a likely win for Clinton? Well, look, I do think she is going to win Colorado. I think she's going to win it because voters here reject the divisiveness of Donald Trump, reject the threat that he would pose to our national security and our society. Um, but that doesn't that's very different than uh, taking Colorado for granted or thinking it's in the bag. To the contrary, as you mentioned, I've been here. Uh, we're opening uh, new offices. I think we're up to 16 offices now across the state. The number of staff, the number of offices are going to grow because everybody's voting by mail this year. And there are a lot of people who haven't registered to vote yet or who moved in the last few years and need to re-register. So we're laser focused on that work. And we are on television here. I was actually just uh, just in a bar yesterday and saw our ads on the Olympics. Uh, we've we've uh, had a big Olympics buy, and we've been on cable here in Colorado for uh, the last few months and are going to continue that. So different pieces of the tactical plan will move and change at different times. But we are all in to win here, and nobody should be complacent. We're going to have to work really hard to be successful here. Uh, just one last question. Um, one in eight eligible voters in Colorado is Hispanic, and a lot of those are millennials. Turnout has historically been a challenge with both those groups. Um, what are you doing specifically in Colorado to ensure turnout? Well, a lot of this is uh, hand-to-hand, door-to-door, person-to-person. That's why we have so many organizers on the ground here. I was just working with volunteers uh, yesterday who are going out in person to register young people to vote. I was on the phone last night recruiting volunteers to come in and do that same work. So that's important. But I think the other thing that is incumbent on us as a campaign to get out and talk about in the last few weeks of this election is how much is at stake, and particularly for young people, particularly for young Hispanics. We can go in two very different directions this fall. We can build a country where we do bring people together, where we are stronger together, or where Donald Trump divides us, talks about building a wall, talks about keeping people out of this country, discriminating on immigration based on people's national origin or their religion. Uh, that's not who we are as Americans. And young people are now the, the millennials in particular, are the biggest voting block in our country right now. This is their election to decide. We all have to step up. We all have a responsibility to turn out. And that's what we're going to re- uh, remind them every single day. Robbie, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Robbie Mook is Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. We're working with the Trump campaign to get a national representative from the Republican nominee on our program. Coming up, kids with dyslexia spend part of the summer at a special camp. And then why dyslexia may go hand in hand with entrepreneurship. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Ask a child with dyslexia what they did this summer, and they may answer, I studied. Some spent their summers poring over flashcards for spelling. Coming up, we'll hear about the connection between dyslexia and entrepreneurship. 
First, CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine traveled to a unique summer camp where kids get help with more than just reading and writing. It's just an hour after sunrise when we start our journey into the mountains. We're going to a summer day camp with 11-year-old Beck. Every weekday for five weeks he does this. We're so sorry we're a few minutes late. First, we stop to pick up Beck's friend Tommy, also 11. Both are gentle, attentive boys. Soon, the two of them are engrossed in John Flanagan's Brother Band Chronicles. As if he had not only been there, but had been instrumental in their defeat. It's an audiobook. This way, the two can get lost in literature without the struggle of decoding written words. The boys try to explain to me what dyslexia is like. Here's Tommy, then Beck. Our eyes, like, they bunch up everything, and, like, we miss short words. We see regularly. We see the words as they are, but our Mm -hmm. brain, instead of taking the highway... Like other people do, the highway straight to it. Fast, we take the scenic route and sniff all the flowers on the way. Learning with dyslexia presents a stigma, and that can make dyslexic children the victims of bullying. We're not using the last names of students in this story. To a dyslexic, words look like a jumble of letters, but it's not a visual problem. They struggle with decoding and interpreting written words. Writing can also be a struggle. Here's Austin and Hayden. Really, inside your brain, it's like frying your brain, and you can barely think after you're done reading, like, a chapter of a book. It's just, it's impossible to get it out. You stumble for words. At least I stumble for words. So that's what dyslexia is like. E-A makes three sounds. This. What are those three sounds? E. Is what these children at the Rocky Mountain Camp are doing about it. For hours each day, Beck works on writing and reading, trying to boost his accuracy, fluency, and comprehension. Beck and his tutor, Julia Boldrin, start reviewing dozens of spelling rules and sound combinations, like what three sounds the letters E-A make. A, A. And how do we remember that? Eat steak with bread. Yes. So The teaching method is called Orton-Gillingham developed in the early 20th century. It involves intensive, structured tutoring. Kids learn dozens of rules of reading that build on one another, using all the senses. Imagine needing to retrieve a rule, like the one you're about to hear, every time you come across a new or even old word. Um, The T-C-H-C-K and D-G-E come after a short vowel sound, and the C-H-K and G-E come after a consonant. Boldrin gives Beck time to process what he's learned before moving on to the next rule. The camp's founder, Joyce Bilgrave, says for non-dyslexic students, that's about 70% of the kids in a classroom, it takes 8 to 10 times seeing and saying a word, or exposures, to master a sound or rule. For a teacher to help dyslexic students learn that same concept takes 20 to 40 exposures. If you've got to get 20 or 40 exposures before you master it, she cannot hold her class till our dyslexic children have mastered something. The kids here say the camp gives them the kind of focused, slow instruction they need that they can't get in their public schools. The camp bell tells 11-year-old Tommy it's time to move on to the next class, reading for fluency. Several years ago, Tommy's second-grade teacher called him a problem child who wasn't trying. He begged his mom not to go to school. At camp, he says, it's different. I don't make it seem like, sit at the desk and I'm going to teach you, don't say anything. They're like, raise your hand and ask any question you want. You can add suggestions of a game 
if you wanted to. In fact, in cash-strapped public schools, many teachers aren't trained on the warning signs for dyslexia. The state screening test is not considered a diagnostic tool for dyslexia. When Beck's mom, Karen, noticed he was struggling in kindergarten, teachers told her to be patient, that he'd catch up. The family finally paid to have Beck tested. The week that Beck was diagnosed, I had asked the reading specialist at the school, do you think he's dyslexic? Could it be dyslexia? And she said to me, no, he is way too bright to be dyslexic. That's one of the many myths about dyslexia. In fact, many dyslexics are gifted. But Karen says her son's diagnosis didn't change the way the school was teaching him to read. The district typically uses a literacy curriculum that focuses on small group interventions several times a week. Boulder Valley District just began piloting an Orton-Gilliam-based program last year to about 30 students. Angel Stobaugh is the district's literacy director. We piloted it last year and wanted to ensure that we were going to be able to see growth in students with dyslexia. So right now we're using it on a small scale and do expect to expand it. The district also created a task force of parents and educators to come up with new methods. In the meantime, for Beck and other dyslexic students in the district, options are private tutoring at more than $100 an hour or a private school, which Beck now attends for half a day. It's a financial struggle for the family. By second grade, many dyslexic children, without proper intervention, think they are stupid. 20% of children with learning disabilities drop out of high school. Just two-thirds graduate with a regular diploma. Some of that is fueled by how other children at school can treat children with dyslexia. A couple of you mentioned being bullied. How many of you have been bullied at school? Sitting in a circle outside, almost all the campers raise their hands. Not sometimes, loads of times. Seventh grader Austin remembers fourth grade being the hardest. The teacher would make us read out loud and I would ask to skip, but the teacher would still make me read and I would like stumble on every other word and all the kids would laugh. His parents discovered this camp and now, for the most part, he's pretty caught up. He looked up away from the lake and saw the wolf. It was happily up The kids do outdoor activities in the late afternoon. Now, though, they're crowded around a window to watch a fierce late afternoon storm. They're happy, comfortable with one another. Perhaps more important than keyboarding or fluency skills, this camp is giving them something else. I think Um, this camp is awesome because you get to know that there's more kids like you out there in the world. And over and over, kids like Mitchell tell me they feel safe reading and writing around other dyslexic kids. And that makes them progress faster. Heather Fleming says her son gained a year and a half's worth of growth in reading in five weeks. But she says the best thing is the camp undoes the damage kids have suffered. The most important (laughs) gift you can give to a dyslexic child when they are damaged is their self-worth back. On the car ride home, even though Beck's exhausted, he's clutching his iPad, looking out at the mountains, listening intently absorbed in a novel, reading in his own way. I'm Jenny Brandine, Colorado Public Radio News. So that's the picture for children. Once they grow up, some research shows that people with dyslexia are disproportionately drawn to start their own businesses. That includes big names like Richard Branson, Charles Schwab, and Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, who's also dyslexic. I don't want to make myself sound too old, but when I was a kid, 
people really didn't know what it was. I just know that in third grade, I had to go to speech therapy class. That's from an interview with the International Dyslexia Association. Seth Goldman has written about how dyslexia might actually help entrepreneurs. He's the founder and CEO of Honesty, a $100 million company now owned by Coca-Cola. And his son Jonah has dyslexia. Jonah graduated from Colorado College last year. And Seth joins us from his office. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be with you. When did you first make the connection between dyslexia and entrepreneurship? Well, I saw how um, my son was struggling so much, and I started to interact with more entrepreneurs. And as I talked to them, I saw a lot of the same thought patterns of just thinking thoughts in a different way, in a big-picture way that most people don't. And I happened to be at a conference organized by Inc. Magazine, and there was about 20 entrepreneurs in the room, and I took the liberty of saying, how many of you are either dyslexic or ADD? And more than half the hands in the room went up. And that made me realize that, it's, it, on the one hand, it is a challenge to be dyslexic, but it also is this incredible gift if, if you uh, use it the right way and if you have the right awareness. What kind of responses have you gotten from the piece you wrote a couple of years ago for Inc. Magazine about this subject? Oh, it has been really positive. A lot of parents were so excited. But I also heard from entrepreneurs who's, as well who um, some of them hadn't really uh, appreciated how it was a competitive advantage. One of the things I said in the piece was that if you're dyslexic, you've already learned how to uh, conquer uh, or create your own solutions for, for problems. You've already learned to be resilient and those are, um, you know, those are skills, those are, I guess, call them softer skills, but as an entrepreneur, they're really a core um, competency that any entrepreneur has to have. But why do you think people with dyslexia are drawn to run their own businesses? What is it about them? <laughs> well, number one, they, have, uh, they grew up being really frustrated by literally having to draw in the lines. I mean, that... Our son um, came home in tears one day when the art teacher got mad at him because he wasn't coloring in the lines, and <laughs> it's just not what he does. So most entrepreneurs don't do that well in their early jobs because an early entry-level job is usually um, pretty by the book. You're not necessarily encouraged to think and do your own creative things, or, or you don't necessarily pick up on the signals um, that most uh, people who I would say are more straightforward thinking, think about. So they often um, gravitate towards opportunities where they can be their own boss. Not only does Colorado have brewpub founder turned governor John Hickenlooper, who's dyslexic, but Colorado is also a hotbed for entrepreneurialism. I want to understand more about having dyslexia could help someone who wants to start their own business. You wrote in your article that people with dyslexia, quote, see existing structures from a completely new perspective and are, quote, creative and persistent at finding solutions. What's an example of how you saw this thinking in Jonah? Oh, my goodness. It, it, it <laughs> we often saw it on a daily basis. So one of the things that he and he's had a profound impact on me was that he became a vegetarian, um, at the age of 10 years old. And he was making this connection between um, the food we were eating and the animals that he loved to, to play with. And um, he said, boy, this just doesn't make sense. And so 
Um, he ended up working for an early stage company that I'm now actually executive chairman of called Beyond Meat. And it, that's a company that has really sought to create a plant-based protein alternative. And, and this was uh, my connection to this whole area was, was inspired by our son, you know, seeing our food chain and food system in ways that I had grown up taking for granted. And he really helped me think about it in a completely different way. So he, he didn't take things for granted. He, he looked at them with, with fresh eyes. Um, you know, when we Absolutely. talked with um, Governor Hickenlooper about his dyslexia a few months ago, he said he had developed compensation sort of workarounds. And he elaborated on that in an interview or in the interview we heard earlier um, with the International Dyslexic Association. I'm in a position where I have to learn a lot of information. And yet all my staff knows that, that you can't give me, you've got to get it down to a one and no more than two pages because it just takes me too long to read it. Another example of a workaround I've read is that folks with dyslexia find people they trust to do things they can't efficiently do themselves. And uh, does that mean they're good at delegating authority? <laughs> well, it means they're good at finding solutions, coming up with creative ways to um, get things done. And for Jonah, when he was in high school, um, you know, he often would read the comic book. He's very, dyslexics are often very visual learners. So he would read comic book versions of this, you know, a classic comics illustrated um, story. You know, if they were reading the Moby Dick, he read the comic book version. And he would do incredibly well. He still internalized the story. He would still pick up the, the key vocabulary. Um, but that's just one example of they, all, they have, they have uh, by definition, they create their own workarounds. And, and you know, one thing that's important to recognize is, is the, the Jonah and, and the, the, the boys you had on, in the earlier segment are empowered, entrepreneur, um, empowered dyslexics because they have that awareness. Unfortunately, most dyslexic and most parents of dyslexics don't have the condition diagnosed, and that's where it can be incredibly um, frustrating, uh, upsetting for both the parents and for the child. And, and you know, we had until we were, had this awareness. Jonah used to say, "I'm I'm stupid." I, I you know, and of course he wasn't. He just didn't have that awareness and hadn't really. Um, been encouraged to find the, the, the solutions and supported too. Yeah, the kids we heard in Jenny's story have dealt with a lot of rejection in school, one who was called a problem child who wasn't trying. How can dealing with adversity like that uh, help someone become an entrepreneur? Yeah, well, entrepreneurs deal with setbacks every day. Um, and and um, so you do have to develop that thick skin and you do have to develop a, a resilience. And so, um, yeah, there were a lot of <laughs> there were a lot of tearful moments for our son as a as a uh, dyslexic. And there are quite a few stressful moments for me as an entrepreneur building honest tea. Um, I, and so you you only are able to overcome them if you if you sort of develop that resilience. And so. They have, by definition, I haven't met a, a, a dyslexic who hasn't, you know, had that, that painful um, kind of encounter where they feel inferior. And so you have to develop that, that resilience and that self-esteem that lets you come back from, from those kinds of defeats. 
One study found that dyslexia is more common among small business owners in the U.S. than experts previously thought. A professor at the Cass Business School in London found that more than a third of entrepreneurs she surveyed in the U.S. identified themselves as dyslexic. That's one study. Others have questioned that high number. But still, as we heard in Jenny's piece, a lot of kids with dyslexia can feel like they're stupid, drop out of school. Did you go through a lot of that kind of frustration with Jonah? Yeah, you know, the first four years of of elementary school were really challenging for him. And until once we gained that awareness, then as one of our one of our parent friends who also had dyslexia, she told her son, you know, all they're doing is teaching clerical skills and you're just aren't you're not going to be a good secretary or good. You're not going to be able to do clerical skills. But if it's about thinking creatively and expansively, you'll be fine. And of course, as we know, in today's economy, that that's really where the value is placed. No, those the, that's the valuable type of thinking. So um, it was a challenge those early years, but it's it's really it was wonderful for for Jonah and for us as parents to see him gain that awareness and confidence, and he continues to thrive now as as somebody who does have confidence. Um, and in in a sense, having just like anything, any challenge you overcome as a as an as a human being, you know, when you can overcome it, you do it builds confidence. Seth, thanks so much for being with us. Seth, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be with you. Seth Goldman is founder and CEO of Honesty. We talked about the connection between entrepreneurship and dyslexia. Coming up next, one mountain town is using nature as a stage for art. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're taking you to Breckenridge today. There you'll find public art, circus acts, concerts, and more. It's all part of this week's Breckenridge International Festival of Arts. The town spent more than $200,000 on this 10-day event, and that's only a slice of what Breckenridge has invested into its arts and culture recently. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones takes us to a spot where you might not expect to see art. My first stop in Breckenridge is a popular place to hike and mountain bike. We are on the Illinois Creek Trail in Breckenridge over by the ice rink. That's Dina Sanchez. She's lived in Breckenridge for 23 years. Sanchez leads me to a small site along the trail that's bordered by yellow caution tape. And a sign that says, environmental installation in process. Please do not disturb. Sanchez used to own a flower shop. Now she takes that experience and makes art, like this outdoor installation. She calls it botanical weavings, and I am taking branches, grasses, flowers, and I'm weaving them through the woods. So the entire trail is part of one big exhibit. It's all part of a program called Trail Mix that brings pop-up artworks and even concerts to different paths. Sanchez got $1,500 to do her installation. She plans to donate it because for Sanchez, this work is about more than money. To make our community diverse. That's what it's all about. People just thought about Breckenridge as a ski town. Now there's so much more. Just a few minutes away, you'll find a lot more art made downtown. So this is the beginning of the Arts District. Rob Wolf is president and CEO of Breckenridge Creative Arts, or Breck Create. The nonprofit manages the town's cultural venues. It also hosts events like this week's festival, which includes the Trail Mix series. And this is a campus made up of eight different 
creative studios, creative spaces. We have a couple live-work spaces here for guest artists. There are studios for glassblowing, textiles, and ceramics. This campus costs more than $8 million, and most of the buildings were renovated. Right now we're looking at the Fuqua livery stable where we do painting and drawing. And this actually was the horse stable at the turn of the century. Wolf says this campus represents the town's larger commitment to arts and culture. They put over $25 million into building out their cultural assets. Cultural assets like this arts campus. The idea to do all this started about a decade ago and really came together last year. The annual budget for Brett Create is $2.5 million. Most of that money comes from the town through sales tax. I don't think we're doing anything necessarily new, but we're doing it new for a small resort mountain community. There's a cafe called The Crown right across from the Riverwalk Center for Performing Arts. Owner Brett Cox says his business has grown each summer. He says one big reason is more cultural events in town. And Cox says when you have more activity and more visitors... You need employees to you know, support such a busy town and such a busy ski resort. The problem, Cox says, is that there's a lack of affordable housing in Breckenridge. He tells stories of some of his employees who live in their cars. Meanwhile, town council member Elizabeth Lawrence says she knows about the affordable housing concerns and other big needs. Parking and transit, maybe an aging population, these are things that we're looking at. Lawrence ran for town council two years ago on a platform that emphasized the town's push for arts and culture. And she says the revenue from these initiatives can help with the other challenges the town faces. Our tourism is going to continue to grow, and then that's going to help us provide this infrastructure that our town needs. Breckenridge also has one of the newest creative districts certified by Colorado. That brought about $30,000 worth of support from the state, and Brett Create President Rob Wolf hopes that recognition attracts more people to the arts campus. And you'll see this parking area here transforms into a special event space. Brett Create has now been around for a year and a half. So this is where we would host the Fire Arts Festival, the Street Arts Festival. Wolf says as this arts and culture effort expands, the goal is for Brett Create to become self-sustaining and not rely on as much public funding. That means a greater mix of ticketed events and classes on top of free events and public art. You know, we were seeing sort of the creative development in Aspen, in Telluride, even Steamboat. And Breckenridge really wanted to be a player within this. After all, Wolf says, mountain towns can be very competitive when it comes to enticing visitors and their dollars. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. Now let's take a closer look at the second annual Breckenridge International Festival of Arts. Many of the festival events focus on the environment. Here again is Breck Create President Rob Wolf. We really took that idea and said, well, let's start infusing everything we do with that. How do we use the river? How do we use the mountain? How do we use the trees? How do we use the trails as um, canvases, as stages? Tasha Lewis is one artist who uses her surroundings to display her work. Lewis is from New Jersey, and the festival commissioned two of her installations that have appeared around the world. Tasha, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You brought an example of your work to the studio. This is part of a public art installation called The Swarm. What are these? So what I brought today are just a few of my thousands of magnetic cyanotype butterflies. And uh, they're part of this exhibition that's uh, in Breck right now. And um, where do you put all these butterflies? 
For a lot of my installations, it's actually been about finding sort of Uh, overlooked objects in urban and rural spaces that are made out of these metallic metals, so iron, steel, and tin, and just kind of making commuters stop and assess their environment in a new way. So describe the uh, butterflies a little bit. Yeah, so the cyanotype is actually a photographic process from the 1840s, and it's also known as a sunprint or a blueprint, and it's actually what architectural blueprints are made out of. So it has a very distinctive blue and white image. And so that photograph is actually then hand-stitched to a magnet, which allows them to alight on these magnetic objects without leaving a trace. And you really have a feel for them when you see them that they're they're real butterflies. Why butterflies? Well, butterflies were sort of part of this investigation in taxidermy and how we sort of classify nature. And I wanted to break out of the way, you know, in a natural history museum, the butterflies will be in these very geometric rows and shelves. And I wanted them to be able to explore the world and really break out and uh, and change the way we think about those preserved objects. Um, You have another series called The Herd, and you mentioned taxidermy. Uh, Describe what these pieces look like. Yeah, so The Herd is using a similar process. The skins are also cyanotypes, and they're sort of a combination of antelopes and deer, and they're really breaking out of the wall, jumping through glass, and, and jumping back into the wall. And where do you set these up? Mostly those are in gallery spaces, and they sort of bridge the idea between, you know, keeping, making the gallery not just a blank white box, but kind of alluding to the idea that they kind of are breaking through the wall. In your art, you seem to hint at at some friction between humans and the environment. Is that your intention? It is to a certain extent. I definitely want the, especially the swarm piece, to kind of bring people into an awareness of the now, into like an awareness of the space that they're walking through in downtown Breck. It was great to engage with people walking by. And and that's kind of, you know, that's about the awareness. It's not particularly an environmental cause, but just about, you know, being present. So, so not exactly friction, but understanding each other. Exactly. Humans yeah. understanding their environment. Yeah. You installed these pieces inside the old Masonic Hall of Breckenridge, some of them. Why there? That was sort of the main gallery space where the herd was as well. And so we actually split up my 2,000 butterflies into three different kind of dynamic shows. So that was the interior space. We had about 700 in the Blue River Plaza across the street, and then 300 that are the gorilla butterflies that I call, which um, will be available to move around the town and uh, engage with people walking by. And and gorilla butterflies because they're spread out around. Yeah, gorilla actually because we don't really ask for permission. It's just sort of on public objects, so on benches, on light posts, on electrical units. And have and you spied on people watching them? <laughs> I have. Yeah, it's kind of fun. <laughs> what people, do they do? Well, people sort of wonder if they can take them. Sometimes I'll sit back from an installation and kind of watch and see how people interact. And usually people respect it and they're just excited and interested to see how they work. Has anyone tried to take one? Definitely. No, they're definitely very appealing, which is sort of, you know, a double-edged sword. But um, usually, you know, I can talk to them, engage them, and talk to them about the project. I understand you also led some workshops for the festival. What were those like? I did, yeah. We actually did a butterfly-making workshop, and so that really led people through the process of what I do and what I did for the past six weeks to make these 2,000 butterflies. And I think a lot of people came out of it realizing, like, 
wow, art, you know, it's hard work. You know, it's a lot of hand skills. You know, a lot of people who were learning how to thread needles for the first time and sewing the magnet on is almost like sewing on a button. So, you know, there are some people that have those skills. Some fishermen came and they were like, oh, I got this. Like, this is just like, you know, throwing my fly. I'm like, oh, cool. (laughs) You know, so um, so there were some shared skills and some new skills for people to learn. Did you have a lot of kids? I had a few kids, but definitely got to be above, you know, scissor age for that. (laughs) (laughs) This work seems like a good fit for a mountain community. What in particular drew you to this festival? Well, I was actually found by Rob. And once I found out about the the whole festival, I was fascinated. And it was definitely, I mean, bright blue skies worked perfectly with the blue butterflies. And, you know, we actually installed on some of the ski lifts. You know, a ski town actually provided a lot of really interesting and new novel surfaces, um, you know, from the other urban environments I've been in. Tasha, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Tasha Lewis is an artist from New Jersey. Her public art installations are on display now during the Breckenridge International Festival of Arts. The event runs through Sunday. Find details and see photos at cprnews.org. And coming up, the man who discovered a new species holed up in a cave in Colorado Springs. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. A new species was recognized this year, but it's not cute or cuddly, unless you want to cuddle up with blood-red cave worms. Biologist David Steinman of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science discovered them living off toxic gases in a cave in Steamboat Springs. He spoke in June with my colleague Ryan Warner. Welcome to the program. I'm okay. Thanks for being with us. You would not expect an almost alien ecosystem in a resort town like Steamboat Springs. Where Where is this cave? Sulphur Cave is located right near the Olympic practice ski jumps on Howlison Hill in Steamboat Springs. So if you're familiar with the town of Steamboat and you've seen the big ski jumps, the cave's really just right near by the ski jumps, right in the middle of the city of Steamboat Springs. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, Howelson Hill occupies a big place in ski history. Who knew about this cave? You've been inside it for, I guess, almost a decade every year going there. What's it like inside? Oh, it's an extremely unusual cave. Within the whole world, there are not very many sulfur caves like this in existence. And going into sulfur cave, it's actually a deadly toxic cave belching, you know, stinky, poisonous gases and toxic gases. So there's hydrogen sulfide and there are also um, lethal levels of carbon dioxide. And so going inside is like really an experience. It takes putting on self-contained breathing apparatus, sort of like firefighters wear, so one doesn't breathe the toxic air. And then you have to climb down a really muddy, goopy slope that's stinky and slimy. But once inside, it's actually beautiful place with crystals and little formations and really interesting cave and a stream flows through the cave as well. Hmm. And these blood red worms, are they all over the cave or do you have to seek them out in pockets of it? Oh, they're really all over the cave, surprisingly. That's one of the more unusual things about this new species. Mostly worms like this live more individually and not in like big clumps or congregations. And there must be 
tens of thousands of worms in Sulphur Cave, mm. and they're really not very hard to see. One has to look, just pay attention, but they're in little clumps in, on the ground. They're wiggling and red and moving and really, again, sort of slimy, but they're pretty in their own unusual way. So it's not very hard to see them once one starts looking around. Are they very long? Oh, they're probably about an inch long or so, and about as thin as a pencil lead. And they really move, and they're, they're little segments inside. They're basically transparent, so one can see their internal organs, and they look quite nice under a microscope. I see. Is that why they're blood red, because their internal organs are blood red and you can see them? Yes, exactly. And the, mainly the internal organs are full of their blood, which is um, very high in hemoglobin, and they have blood that binds oxygen amazingly well, which is one of the neat things about these worms. They can transport oxygen um, in conditions that allows them to breathe, essentially, where it's very low levels of oxygen. And that's one of the things we're researching is how their blood um, basically carries oxygen and binds oxygen so well to hemoglobin. And there could, in the long term, be some potential medical benefits to that aspect in terms of improving blood oxygenation and oxygen transport for people who have poor circulation or other problems. Hmm. Do they live elsewhere in the world, or do you think that they are unique to Steamboat? I believe they're unique to the Steamboat Springs area because of the geology there and all the hot springs allow these worms to live in a very sulfitic environment. With, you know, when you go into the city of Steamboat, you can often smell that rotten egg smell, yeah. and that's how sulfur cave smells. So we haven't really, I've explored Glenwood Springs a little bit and some of the sulfur caves there and haven't seen them, these worms. So right now we're thinking they're just in the steamboat area, but they could be found to be out in more places. And actually there's a, a cave in Italy, which is a sulfur cave. And I've been told by researchers that they've seen some blood red worms in that cave as well, but they just still need to be studied and collected. I wonder if their ability to survive in these low-oxygen environments, I don't know, might hold some promise for the athletes that are just outside the cave at altitude and who, you know, need oxygen. Yes. I actually joked to some of my friends over the years that if, like, people, athletes, could eat worms or have worm blood, yeah, their performance (laughs) would be significantly improved. That's for certain. So, and they're also, also, we're working with a group in France we've just started collaborating with, and they're researching extremophile worms, and the sulfur cave worms are considered extremophiles because they live in an extreme environment, which would be deadly to most creatures. And so this group in France is actually studying extremophile worms for new antibiotics because the worms live in an environment with, surrounded by bacteria and yet they don't seem to be diseased or have any ill effects from their environment. So there could be new and interesting antibiotics, actually, in these worms potentially as well. Fascinating. In just the last few seconds we have, David, um, this leads to the question of extraterrestrial life and whether if worms can survive in this environment, there might be something like this on another planet. Um, I suppose that's one of the interesting questions you're looking at. Yes, it is. Okay. I've been working with Dr. Norm Pace and Dr. Hazel Barton, who are both microbiologists, and the the worms in Sulphur Cave actually eat bacteria, and the bacteria are metabolizing hydrogen sulfide and chemicals 
to get their um, energy. So this ecosystem in Sulfur Cave could be similar to something on another planet or maybe the moon Io of Jupiter because the ecosystem is not dependent at all upon sunlight and it gains its base energy from um, the chemicals in the ground and in the water. So I could easily see bacteria similar to the sulfur cave bacteria being in existence on other planets and maybe potentially higher level organisms like the worms as well. That's cave biologist David Steinman of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He spoke with Colorado Matters' Ryan Warner about blood-red cave worms in Steamboat Springs. That's our show for this Monday. Rachel Estabrook directed the show. Michael Hughes is our audio engineer. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.